All right, good morning. Good morning. Again, it was this side of the room. Now you're all quiet, but we'll take it. I'm glad you're here. Uh, my name is Michael Fueling, the lead pastor here at the Village Church. But good morning. Thank you, Jonathan. Thank you. Now you're my new favorite side. Good luck. Uh, before we jump into the message, I want to share just some exciting news. Um, if, if you're kind of new to Village Church, uh, we have a location in Carroll Stream, and Pastor Craig is the pastor over there, and you've seen him here every once in a while. Again, we prepare about 80% of our sermons together along with another church in Bartlett, and love, love being one church in two locations with them. This summer, they're moving from uh, being in Carroll Stream in the community center, and they are spending the summer with a church in Carroll Stream called Fellowship. This morning is really their first official morning worshiping together throughout the summer. And one of their agendas throughout the summer is to see if these two churches could become one church. And so what we want to do is I want to just take a moment before we get into God's word. Would you mind if we pray again? I'd love to lift them up in the summer. And again, if you're part of our email um, list, uh, we're going to update you as things kind of go on. And if you're not on Village Church East email list and you want to get regular updates, um, you can jump onto the hub and you can access that there. I believe leave sometime after the uh, 12 o'clock service today. We'll make sure there's a link for you there. So let's pray uh, for Village Church East and then also for fellowship. God, um, I thank you for your providence, how you orchestrate. I thank you for um, the heartbeat between fellowship and Village Church. I thank you, God, that um, it is very probable that these two church families could be better together. Uh, so many questions to be answered and what ifs, and so we just lift up both of these communities, um, both of the leaders in both churches, and pray for wisdom, your will, your desire, clarity, that whatever is right, whether they go back to being two separate churches at the end of the summer or come together as one church, God, we pray that it is only ever about you, your will your kingdom, your way. We want nothing more than what you want. But I also know whatever happens between Village Church East and Fellowship, the evil one hates camaraderie amongst churches, hates when brothers are unified. We love for every local church in Bartlett and beyond to be pitted against each other because one is better at another thing than another. And Lord, would you not give the evil one an ounce of ground as they worship and serve together? Lord, uh, many in this room know what marriage is like. You take two different cultures and two different people and two different personalities and you bring them together in a home. And, and so, Lord, as we pray for new marriages, we also pray that this season of courting would be one that gives you glory, that you would protect it, and you would give everyone unity and eyes to see what the will of the Lord is in this. So we lift them up to you and we celebrate with them and, and I look forward to seeing how you're going to work. Uh, we don't have a script. Uh, we, again, as we look to the future, you surprise us regularly. And so even though some of us don't like surprises as much as others, we welcome your will always in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. All right, open up your Bibles to the book of John, chapter 7. This is week two in the series, Jesus versus Evil. And what we've seen is that Jesus is encountering, really in his life, the personification of evil, which is the Pharisees. I asked my children, if you have three kids, 13, 11, and 9, as of today, and I asked them, what is evil? I really appreciated their answers. One said, from Satan, bad Sin. Good. Another said, something that comes from Satan and does not please God. Good. Another said, just simply, a wrongdoing. So do you know what I really appreciated about all of their answers? Well, number one, I was really proud of myself. I was like, we've done some pretty good training here at Village Church and in the feeling home. That. 
I'll tell you though what I was really proud of. I was really proud of how low their bar for evil really is. Because here's what happens when you get older. We like to make evil big, bad, scary, out there so that we can distance ourselves and then feel pretty good about ourselves. Anyone do that? If I were to ask you, are you evil or do you have a heart that is inclined to evil or have you ever done something evil? Honestly, most Christians' impulse would be to say, oh, I'm not that bad, right? But even my children understand, I think, I think actually we might be missing the mark. I think evil might be a little bit more common. So let's just take a moment. Let's define evil. Very simple. Evil is what opposes God and his ways. Now, I love this, whether ignorant or intentional. Now, let me ask again. Have you participated in evil this morning? Laura <laughs> said, yes, that was the great. Yes. <laughs> Thank you for your honesty. I appreciate it. Now, this is easy to understand, but I want to go deeper. And as Christians, we need to understand probably a lesser known fact about evil. Evil has a spectrum. And we call this the spectrum of evil. So let's explore this. And what you're going to notice is that as the spectrum grows, things will get worse and worse and more evil. And what you're also going to notice about the spectrum, if you look at it and then kind of analyze your own personal life, that it only takes you in one direction. And that's down unless you have the Holy Spirit who allows you in any given moment to reverse trajectories and to do things for good and the glory of God through faith in Christ. So what you're going to notice is that this just goes down, down, down. All right, the spectrum of evil from least to most evil, number one is harm to non-living things. Think of vandalism or harming creation. Now, don't get me wrong. These are evil, but they're like not the worst things that you could do. Can we agree there are worse things to do than vandalism. But number two is harm to your own character. These are things like deception, cutting corners, cheating, believing lies, compromising. And when you do this kind of harm to your own character, can we, can we agree this is opposing God and this is a form of evil? But it's not the worst, right? Like we can do far worse than this. Number three, harm to another person's character. This would be like slander or teaching lies and propaganda or gossip. Let's go a step deeper. Harm to your own physical body, lust, cutting, gender and sex transitioning. I mean, we could go on and on. Let's go even deeper. Harm to another's body, violence, sexual sin, murder. So we're not, we're not done yet. There's one last one, but I want you to notice a really important trend on the spectrum of evil. Evil is proportional to its impact on image bearers. And so the more impact there is on the body and the soul of an image bearer, 
the more evil something becomes. And so we see this trend really clearly in Old Testament law. And so as sin moves down the, the spectrum of evil, its legal consequences get greater and greater. And the more harm that is done to another person under Old Testament law, the repercussions legally, the consequences get greater and greater and greater. And one of the things the Old Testament is trying to teach us is that, yes, all sin will damn you to hell, but not all sin is equal. Uh, trust me, you would rather be, um, you'd rather be like have somebody yell at you in anger than murder you, Okay. Right? Can I get an amen on this? I don't know where we got this idea that all sin is equal, but it is not equal. And the Old Testament doesn't teach it. Jesus doesn't teach it. All sin will damn you, but not all sin is equal. But there, there is a, another factor that takes this to the next level. Number six, it's harm done without regret or remorse. Once there is a lack of regret or remorse, evil has nothing but social and legal constraints to hold it back. And this is what made, by the way, the Pharisees so utterly dangerous. The only thing that they lacked to bring their conspiracy to murder Jesus to fruition was the support of the crowds. That was it. And so they are hell-bent on getting the masses to agree with them that Jesus of Nazareth must be executed. Now, they've got somehow Jewish law on their side, and they're going to get Roman law on their side, but really now they need to get the masses and the crowds on their side. So let me ask you just a reflective question because we're going to go through, we're going to watch Jesus and the crowds and the Pharisees, and, and they're going to do some pretty dark things as this text unfolds. But your question, I want you to ask is this, before you think you're better than all of them, how deep has evil taken you? What are you capable of apart from the spirit of Christ? Or some of you, as you have quenched the spirit of Christ, and you have pushed him aside, how deep has it taken you? And you're going to be tempted, by the way, as you read all of these characters over the next few weeks, you're going to be tempted to think you are so much better than them. But the same evil that facilitates atrocities all over the world, it all began in hearts just like yours and mine. All right, John chapter seven, we're gonna be in the second half of John seven. John seven focuses primarily on, on the crowds. And what you're gonna see is that there's basically two groups in the crowd. There's gonna be the group that moves in the direction of evil, and there's gonna be the group that moves in the direction of good. And the only difference between these two groups is one single fact. It is whether or not they believe in Jesus. That singular fact is going to determine at the end of the day which trajectory every single person in the crowds takes. Now, as we look at John 7, uh, if you were not here last week, we talked about two tools of evil, and I need to let you know what they are because they're gonna pop up in this message regularly. The first tool that evil uses is propaganda. That's basically false information to make you doubt what is true and real. And when propaganda fails, the next tool of evil is they use fear to force your compliance to whatever their agenda is. So you're gonna watch propaganda and fear regularly throughout this text. Let's look at verse 14. 
About the middle of the feast, or in the Feast of Tents or Tabernacles, it's about a week long, Jesus went up into the temple and he began teaching. Now, remember, Jesus didn't go at the beginning of the week because there's a plot, there's a conspiracy to kill him. So he goes up incognito in the middle of the week and then nobody knows where he is and then out of nowhere he starts teaching. And it says this in verse 15, the Jews, therefore, they marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? The vast majority of these people, by the way, had only heard about Jesus. They had not actually sat under the teaching of Jesus of Nazareth. And the question stands, why are they marveling? Because the propaganda said that he was a heretic. But here he is, opening God's word and teaching in its context, the author's intention in a way that nobody can really dispute. Why are they marveling? Because the propaganda said he disregarded the law of Moses and just threw it aside, but here he is. He opens up the law, interprets it accurately, and applies it in the spirit of the law. And it's interesting because all the people, they're like, wait a minute, we heard you were crazy. Wait a minute, we heard you hated the law of Moses. Wait a minute, we heard that you actually disregarded it and you were a, a lawbreaker. We heard you eat people. <laughs> you gotta eat my flesh, drink my blood. The propaganda and their firsthand experience, they were not in sync. And this is how propaganda is dismantled. Everywhere, always. There must be a personal experienced disequilibrium between what you heard, the propaganda, and what is real. Never in all of history has there been a person who has had more propaganda against them than Jesus of Nazareth. When I meet people who know the Bible and are Christians but don't go to church because it's not for them and all the other things, and then I ask them basic questions, I'm telling you, the, the vast majority of people do not know Jesus of the Bible. They know propaganda Jesus. And the things they tell me about Jesus, I'm like, have you ever read the Bible? Yeah, I've read, I've read the whole thing. Have you? Because that's not in there. But then here's what happens. People open up the Bible and they actually read Jesus and they go, wait a minute. This isn't the Jesus I heard about. This Jesus is actually way more compelling. In fact, propaganda Jesus is worth rejecting. But real Jesus actually is way more beautiful and interesting and funny and nuanced and insightful and helpful and kind of mesmerizing and really smart and gracious and kind, but also goes after evil, like I would hope that my Jesus would, but also takes care of the least. And, and all of a sudden, people's brains are kind of exploded, and, and then they're like, whoa, he's angry. Whoa, he's full of wrath. He judges the world. Holy moly. And the more you get to know real Jesus as opposed to propaganda Jesus, you begin to realize like, the real Jesus is a way better, way more just, way more good, way more interesting Jesus than all the false Jesuses that we hear about. It's not unusual when people go to a Bible teaching church or they find a Bible teacher online that they go, I never knew that. Holy moly. And it's interesting here in John 7, every single person listening to Jesus, they have to make a choice. Was the propaganda I heard Truth or fake news? And the singular factor that is gonna make the difference for every single person 
whether it's in John 7 or here or otherwise, is whether or not you believe or they believe in Jesus. So now what Jesus is going to do, he's going to engage the crowds directly. And with every sentence, the crowds are gonna be divided more and more. Verse 16 says, Jesus answered them, my teaching, it's not mine, but his who sent me. And I love this. He's actually acknowledging that his teaching is marvelous. And the reason it's marvelous is because it is from the Father. It is from God. It is not just some pastor getting up, preaching modern social fads. That's not what it is. It's Jesus opening up the God-inspired word of God, interpreting and applying it correctly. Do you know how many times people will go to churches where literally the only things talked about are modern social movements, and then they find, again, an online Bible teacher, they go to a Bible teaching church, and the preachers aren't even, like, organized or decent, and they're like, I've never heard anything like this. They're blown away by what the Word of God actually says. And here are these people, they have been taught by corrupt Pharisees with agendas, adding rules to laws, preaching whatever they want to retain control and power. And here Jesus is, he opens up the word and he just teaches. And they're like, we've, I don't know that we've ever heard the word of God without agenda attached to it. That's new information. Propaganda, fake news, truth, what's real. And they're marveling because they're experiencing disequilibrium. They actually didn't expect this. They're realizing, maybe, I mean, maybe I have been the victim of pharisaical propaganda. Look at verse 17. I think it's one of the most important verses in John 7. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. So the crowds, I want you to catch this. They can identify good teaching from God's word. The crowds, it seems, might even be enjoying good teaching from God's word. But the desire to obey teaching rooted in God's word is what separates the evil from the righteous. And so if if you're here And I were to ask you, do you, in your heart of hearts, desire to do what the word of God says? I'm not saying like you don't have a competing desire in there. I'm just saying though, is there a dominant desire in your heart to obey God's word no matter what it says? Yes, you have a strong flesh. Yes, you make mistakes. But like, like, are you pulled to obey God's word no matter what? Let me tell you, that is a work of the Holy Spirit, period. No questions asked. That comes from God. That's it. So if you have that, I want you to know this. That happened because you believed in Jesus and because he gave you a will, a desire for him. Praise God. But evil actions, they're birthed out of an evil heart. And the difference between you, Christian, and them is you have the Holy Spirit that allows, us, that allows you to change course. And once you're on the spectrum of evil, Once you are there, which is everybody who's ever been born, without the Holy Spirit, you have one direction that you can go. So Jesus, he is well aware that the crowds are dividing more and more, the more he talks. There's a question that everybody has to, again, answer. Will I believe this Jesus or not? And and so one of the things Jesus is going to identify is here's one of the most obvious ways you can really discern whether or not a teacher is from God or from below. Okay, here he goes. Verse 18. The one who speaks on his own authority, he seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory 
of him who sent him is true, and in the end there is no falsehood. Like, look around you crowds. Imagine Jesus saying, am I trying to build my own kingdom and my own glory? Because if so, I probably would have done things pretty differently, and I could have grown a much, much larger crowd. In fact, what I've done is I have gotten a group of people who want to kill me, and I keep inciting crowds, but all I'm doing is healing, 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 doing good. That, like, that's what I'm doing. Now, look at the opposition. Whose glory are they seeking? Do you hear them pointing you to God, or are they pointing you to their rules so that they might control you through propaganda and fear? Verse 19. He says, has not Moses given you the law? And they're like, well, of course Moses has given us the law. We're masters of the law. We know everything. And, and, and this, is, this is a powerful statement from Jesus. He's, in a, he's teaching publicly. People are kind of muttering and responding. And he says to the crowd, yet none of you keeps the law. Hmm, none of you keeps the law. And at this point, they're like, what do you mean? And then he amps it up. Why do you seek to kill me? Now, when you drop a bomb like that, the crowd's gonna get divided between two groups of people. The ones who are conspiring to kill him and the ones who are not. And the ones who are not might say something like this. What are you talking about? But the ones who are, what, what do you do when you poke a nerve? You accuse, you name call, you freak out, you're really defensive. And they say, you have a demon who is seeking to kill you. Let me ask you a question. Is calling Jesus a demon a sign of belief or unbelief? You have a demon. It's probably touched a nerve. Now, typically, I'm going to tell you, don't argue with large crowds of people who are calling you a demon, who are angry at you, and who are probably conspiring with another group of legal leaders who want to kill you, okay? Unless you're Jesus and your agenda actually is to die so that you can save all of said accusers from hell. Verse 21. Jesus answered them, I think this is a funny text, but I did one work, and you marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it's from Moses, but from the fathers. Anyways, I love Jesus' like little clarifications. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. Basically, what this meant is it didn't matter when a kid was born, they had to be circumcised on the eighth day. And if that eighth day fell on the Sabbath, then the law of Moses permitted them to do this kind of work on the Sabbath because you can't break the law of Moses no matter what. He says in verse 23, if on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me? Because on the Sabbath I made a, I made a man's whole body well? Let, let me translate. You cut off a man's foreskin and rejoice any day of the week, but if you heal a man's body and you change the course and trajectory on his life, if it's a Saturday, you're done. You will murder me if I heal and change a man's life on a Saturday, and yet you'll go do your work on a Saturday any day. Do, do you see the problem? The Pharisees don't like what's happening, by the way, because what Jesus is doing is using the word of God to out them as propaganda teachers. And then he says in verse 24, he says to the crowds, don't, don't judge by appearances. Judge with right judgment. What is he asking them to judge? A few things. Number one, Am I or am I not the Christ? What more do you need to know and to see to understand that I am truly the Messiah, the promised one from your law and the Old Testament? Judge, is my teaching biblical or not? Judge, is the propaganda you heard true 
or false. Because if you don't have an agenda and you can just allow all the facts on the table, they all point in one singular explicit direction that I am the Christ, I am the Messiah. And all the people in the crowd, they have the same facts and they gotta deal with the same information. Jesus can do unbelievable miracles. Clearly the power of God is on him. The limit to his miracles seems endless. His teaching is unbelievable. It's rooted in God's word. It's orthodox, faithful, and true. The spirit of God is clearly on him. He meets all the requirements for biblical prophecy. And then here are the Pharisees dropping it in and just kind of bringing these little bit of lies to get them to doubt. And I want you to watch. Verse 25, the confusion sets in, says, some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, isn't this the man who they seek to kill? And the Pharisees are like, shush, you're not supposed to talk about that out loud. And here he is, he's speaking openly and they say nothing to him. Can it be the authorities really know that this is the Christ? And, and for a moment, don't you feel like the crowds are getting there? And then verse 27, it says, but we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. Okay, you might not know the Bible very well, but I'm gonna tell you something really simple. That's not true. The Bible explicitly says, and these crowds know this, that the Messiah is gonna come from Bethlehem of Judea, the city of David. Like that's 101, okay? So either they're lying or they've just, they're like, well, maybe that isn't true. Well, the Bible teacher said that isn't true. So maybe I misunderstood the text and I don't know where it's coming from, but this propaganda goes deep. And look at verse 31, it says, yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, Will he do more signs than this man has done? And the people who are believing, here's what they're saying. What more could he do? For real. Like the dude could literally like heal all of you and change your lives and give you access into heaven and bring you back and forth and you still wouldn't believe in him. You might actually mentally acknowledge that he's the Christ, but you'll never truly in your heart believe in him because your hearts are evil. And this is the fundamental problem of proclaiming the gospel to anybody. And when the gospel was proclaimed to you, it was the challenge of proclaiming the gospel to you as well. You needed to hear the gospel and had God wake you up to hear and believe. This is what Jesus has been trying to say for three or four chapters now. That you, you are gonna meet people and their heart, hearts and unbelief are strong. It's the power of God that needs to overcome them. And the evidence of the power of God is their belief. So here's what you have. You have a murder plot, you have confused crowds, you have Jesus in the middle of the crowds preaching, exposing the Pharisees. How do you think the Pharisees feel, by the way? They're not happy. So verse 32, when propaganda fails, evil always re resorts to the tool of fear so that it can get compliance. Verse 32 says, the Pharisees heard the crowds muttering, which basically this means they're like whispering quietly, like, I think he really might be the Messiah. Do you think that they might be hiding who he really is because they want to keep control? Like they're hearing this. And the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officials to arrest him. So we've got more to come in this series. We're gonna consider this to be continued, but I wanna finish John 7 as we share three final so what's. So what number one? Believe in Jesus and receive a new heart that desires righteousness more and more. Verse 37 fast forwards you right to the end of the week. It's called the great day of the festival. It's the, final, it's the final parts of this celebration where they celebrate the presence of God with them when they were in the wilderness. Verse 37 says, on the last day of the feast, the great day. Now, before we read what is gonna happen, I wanna read to you from a commentary about what happens in this moment 
on the last day, the great day of the feast. It says this, a tradition grew up a few centuries before Jesus that on the seven days of the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles, a golden vessel containing water from the pool of Siloam was transported in a priestly procession back to the temple. As it came to the water gate, there are multiple gates and the water gate is one, three trumpet blasts were sounded to mark the joy of the occasion. At the temple, as the people watched, the priests would march around the altar carrying the water contain, container while the temple choir sang the Hallel, which is from Psalms 113 to 118. The water was then offered, poured out as a sacrifice to God, and the use of the water symbolized the blessing of adequate rainfall for the crops. So when we understand, it is the eighth day, and most scholars think that at this moment of the pouring out of water, Jesus stands up, and verse 37, it says this. He stands up, and then he cries out. This is sort of like a, hey, everybody, listen. And there is a ceremony happening, most likely. This is in the temple. This is a big deal on the great day, and here's what he says. He interrupts the entire process. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive for as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. I don't mind saying the same thing to you over and over again. Like um, some of you, like you could probably repeat about 20 different things I say in about every other sermon. The Holy Spirit is one of the greatest gifts in the world that God could give you. Not only does it seal you and mark you as permanently saved once and forever, the second, the millisecond, you trust in Jesus Christ. But the Holy Spirit gives you eyes to see, teaches you, trains you, encourages you. As you open up God's word, the Holy Spirit's collaboration with your mind and your spirit is unbelievable. You and I have no idea what it is like to live. If you're a believer without the Spirit of God, if you came to Christ at a young age, some of you, you came to Christ older in life and you know exactly what it is to live in this world to try and discern evil and propaganda and change your own heart without the Holy Spirit of God. It is one of the most incredible gifts that God gives to every single person, kid or adult, who believes in Jesus Christ. And here's what Jesus says. Do you thirst Believe in me, and I will give you the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is the promise of the Old Covenant. He's talked about in the Old Testament as, as he is going to come in with the Messiah, and he's going to change us and transform us and teach us God's word and make us into the people of God from the inside out. Because what we evil people need is a heart transformation, and this is what the Holy Spirit does. He begins to give us this will, this desire to actually obey God. And until you're dead, your body of flesh is competing, amen? But now you have one of the fruit of the Spirit, which is self-control, the ability to look at the desires of the flesh and say, no, I want something greater. I want to obey God more than I want to obey my evil impulses. So what number two? Don't let the world's confusion and chaos threaten your confidence in Jesus. 
This is how propaganda works. It makes you feel like there are too many options and you can't weed through them enough to get clarity to what is simple and true. Propaganda is designed to confuse you. That is what it does. And the end result is that your confidence is low and you say, there's just too many options. I guess God's at the top of the mountain in any way you take and get, get you there. And even that statement alone, if you think about it, is nonsense. But when we don't know what to do, we just kind of give up and we take the path of least resistance and culture is standing to say, here's the path of least resistance. You can't ever know truth. And I'm here to tell you, if you do a little bit of thinking and praying, the truth of the word of God, it is simple, it is clear. Who Jesus is, is unmistakable. We need to listen to the crowd's confusion. When they heard the words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. And others, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? FYI, they do not like Galileans. Like if you were to be, I don't know, racist or bigoted against any group of people that are the same color skin as you, like the people in Judea or, or in, uh, in, in Jerusalem are gonna be like, mm, like yeah, they're, they're really, they're low class people in Galilee. You tell me he comes from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? Thank you, finally. Somebody says, this is the Bible, right? So there was division among the people in verse 43 over Jesus. Some of them, they wanted to arrest him, but I love this, nobody laid hands on him. And, and here's what you just need to know. There are a gajillion options, and Jesus will always, always divide a room. Always. And the difference between every room you walk into and how they're divided, you're gonna notice it. It's really simple. It's whether they believe in Jesus or not. That's the only difference. And so when you watch a whole bunch of people who don't believe in Jesus be confused about who Jesus is, don't let their lack of clarity, their buying into propaganda, cause you to lose confidence in what you know is actually objective and real and true. But here's, here's my last thought for you. When the world uses fear to control you, be a, a Nicodemus not an officer. Watch, watch, watch what happens. The officers then came, this is verse 45, then came to the chief priests and the Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? I love the officer's response. The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. And the Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities of the Pharisees believed in him? Give us names. We want their names. And if you believe in him, you're next. In verse 40, 49, you see the Pharisees' derision. And it's not just for Jesus, it is for anybody who aligns with Jesus. Verse 49, it says, but this crowd that does not know the law, they're accursed. Imagine your pastor looking at you and saying, unless you believe all these extra laws I write, you're accursed and you're going to hell. And threatening you. Do you understand the weight of spiritual leadership, by the way? It lands heavy on the soul. And so you understand the, these officers, right? They're not in a good place. This is really challenging. I bet every one of these officers, by the way, they went into this guard with really good motives to glorify God. But I want you to watch what happens as they get on the spectrum of evil and it sucks them as low as they can possibly go. Uh, I'm gonna go to the end of jo the book of John. I'm gonna read you four verses from John 18 and 19. And I want you to listen to the progression of what happens to these officers. John chapter 18, verse three. So Judas, 
Uh, never a good guy to be associated with, by the way. Having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, they went there with lanterns and torches and weapons to arrest Jesus. John chapter 18, verse 12. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. John 18, 22. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand saying, is that how you answer the high priest? In the 1906, when the chief priest and the officers saw him, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. Evil demands more and more and more, and it boils you like a frog. And if it cannot get what it wants from you through propaganda, it will resort to fear. And you will find that if you are in the throes of evil and they are trying to control you, they will demand everything from you. And this is where we come to Jesus who wants your life, who wants to bring joy, who wants to give you the Holy Spirit, who births new life in you, who gives you actual love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and self-control I think that's all of them, but I might have missed one. Verse 50 reintroduces us, though, to Nicodemus. Nicodemus was from John chapter 3, all John 3, 16. You know that verse? Ever heard of it? That's written about, that's to Nicodemus. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Nicodemus is standing up to the Pharisees, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? How bold Nicodemus is in this moment after these officers have just been threatened implicitly to look at them and say, the word of God requires that you give this man a hearing. And you know what the Pharisees do not want to deal with? The word of God, because they want Jesus dead. They replied, are you from Galilee too? Are you low class? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Uh, John 19 actually um, introduces us again to Nicodemus. And what I love about Nicodemus is he takes a very different route. Uh, in John 19, Jesus has just been murdered on the cross. And right after this, it says this, in 1939, Nicodemus came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. And Nicodemus wanted to be a part of giving Jesus a proper burial because his heart believed in Jesus. All right, so before we end, I want to um, just introspect for a moment. If you had power and money and influence without Jesus and without the Holy Spirit, do you really believe you would be better than the Pharisees? Now, you're tempted because you probably have the Holy Spirit. So it's hard for you to imagine. But if you can imagine before you were a Christian, if you had actual power, I mean, the power to sit with presidents, actual money. I mean, some of you are wealthy, I'm sure. But I mean, like, like legit influence and money that could buy people and governors. Do you really think that if you had that much power and money and influence without the Holy Spirit, you would be better why is it globally the vast majority of politicians are corrupt and the vast majority of countries are corrupt, right? 
I think we're pretty confident that if we had like full access into the hearts, minds, policies, procedures, secret conversations of almost every politician all over the world, we go, huh, that was way darker than I thought it was. And yet we sit here and say, I think I'm better than that. If you are now better than that, it is because of the Holy Spirit in you that gives you the will and the desire to overcome those impulses. The vast majority of us, though, aren't going to be in a position of power like the Pharisees. The vast majority of us are going to be like the crowds. Are we better than the crowds who can't see the simple, clear, basic truth in front of us? Or maybe, maybe we see clearly because the Holy Spirit is in us. So if you go back to before you trusted in Christ, did you have the ability to discern truth simply, really? Yeah, no, maybe. But it's interesting, as time goes on, we see as more and more people without the Holy Spirit can't see basic things right in front of their face. Why? Because they're victims of propaganda. This is a design. And the design is to get you to doubt what is so simple, what is so obvious, what is so real. But you, Christian, and I, we have the Holy Spirit that allows us to see this. In the 16th century, there was a preacher who was ultimately martyred, burned at the stake. His name was John Bradford. And when he saw a whole bunch of criminals being hanged, he famously said this, there but for the grace of God go I. And what he was saying is, my life would have been lived in such a way, apart from the grace of God, that that's, that's who I would have become. Ironically, he got burned at the stake for following Christ. But there, for the grace of God, he went to his death because he was righteous, not for his unrighteousness. And so I have great news for you. We have a a very crazy world we live in. Our hearts are crazy, but through faith in Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we now have the desire to overcome evil. And we have the power to overcome evil in our own hearts so that we do not need to fall prey to propaganda. We do not need to comply and bend the knee to fear because we have one king and one master, and his name is Jesus. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we just just come before you and are just profoundly aware that we need your Holy Spirit in us more than ever before. Thank you that it is the free gift for each and every single person who trusts in Christ. We didn't didn't just need forgiveness, we need help, and that is by the Spirit. Thank you for your word, too. I love just getting to watch Jesus navigate these incredibly complex situations. I love just watching our Savior and seeing the process he went through to teach and to train and to divide the crowds and ultimately the plan to go to the cross for our sins. Thank you that Jesus himself taught us that he's gonna send us the Holy Spirit. It's actually better that he goes away so that we can have the spirit of Christ. And thank you for the work of your Holy Spirit. Lord, um, would you continue to fill us with gratitude and show us the ways you have changed us, not not just through obedience and behavior, which is good, but, but really ultimately by the power of your spirit, which all of it begins with you saving us. And so Lord, we're gonna celebrate communion here and we're gonna sing and fill us with gratitude. Transform us more and more to the image of Jesus and give us eyes to see your power at work in our lives. And when the moments come where we need to see propaganda clearly, give us your truth. When the moment comes that we need to rise above the fear that the evil one uses against us, would you give us confidence and courage in Christ? We pray this in Jesus' name, amen?
Amen. Well, as we celebrate communion, there are elements over to my left at this column, over to my right at that column, and then between the double doors. Um, In a little while, we're going to have a time of silence. And when that's done, we're going to sing together, and then we'll partake of the elements at the end of the song. Um, But the reason we celebrate communion, Jesus says to do this in remembrance of me. Because it's really easy to forget that really this is about Jesus, number one. Uh, Number two, we need to be reminded that we needed the intervention of Christ in our lives and we need to be covered by the blood of Jesus. And so we take these moments to remember what Jesus has done for us. And, And one of the things I do often in communion is I reflect on, if I were to give in to the evil impulses of my heart, who would I become? And it's sort of a reminder of who I might become without Jesus's intervention in my life. And it honestly just wells up more and more gratitude for what God has done in my life, not just my saving through the blood of Christ, but also my transformation and your transformation. And so I encourage you as we take a time of silence, it's a time to confess our sins and kind of just get right with God. It's a weekly time where we can just say, God, I'm sorry, because probably we need to say that a whole lot more than we do. But it's also a time to just say, thank you, thank you, thank you. You were so good. You were so kind. I didn't deserve any of this. I deserve hell and separation. And yet you forgave me and you saved me and you gave me your spirit. And now I know if I die today, I know exactly where I'm going. And I have every tool that I need to overcome evil in my life, all because of what Jesus did on the cross and through the resurrection. So let's have a time of silence. And again, anytime in the time of silence or the song, you're free to go get elements, bring them back to your seat, and then we'll partake together at the end of the song.